podcast is brought to you by Taxi! When you need a reliable ride across town, call Big Jerry's Cab Company. Don't gamble with your travel needs your life by using those newfangled rideshare apps. Trust your safety to LA's most trusted cab company, Big Jerry. I'm Big Jerry, and I've been driving these streets for 30 years. I know all the shortcuts get you to where you're going on time. My squad of veteran cabbies have safety, courtesy, and professionalism down to a science. We're not the most trusted cab company in L.A. for nothing. At Big Jerry's, we get you where you need to go without the hassle of searching prices or cancellations. And our cabs are as clean as a whistle. So put your trip in trusty, dependable hands and give Big Jerry's Cab Company a call today. We won't pass you up or drive all over God's green up to jack up our fares. At Big Jerry's Cabs, taking care of our customers is our number one priority. Or my name's not Big Jerry. Taxi! With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy-on, easy-off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Uh, 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 here we go. Everybody be cool, this is a rubbery! Need you cool. Are you cool? Bark all day, little doggy, or are you gonna bite? Oh, I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? I'm a killer. I'm a murdering bastard, you know that? And there are consequences to breaking the heart of a murdering bastard. You really only need to hang mean bastards. But mean bastards, you need to you hear me talking, hillbilly boy? I'ma get medieval on your ass. Don't be shot for this! Nah, I don't think so. More like chewed out. I've been chewed out before. Hey, is everybody okay? The fucking hippies aren't. That, that's for goddamn sure. Kill white folks and they pay you for it. It's not the life. Start to see pictures, ain't you? Gentlemen, you had my curiosity. But now you have my attention. Welcome all you inglorious bastards to Season 3 here on the Church of Tarantino Podcast. I'm your host, the Reverend Scott K., and from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank all of you who continue to support the show, whether you listen to every episode the church drops, or you pick and choose the ones that are the most relevant to your QT fandom. Your support means the fucking world to me, and I am honored that you continue to take time out of your daily life to spend some of it with me. Now, for the third season of this podcast, we will be devoting the majority of our efforts to taking a retrospective look back at the movie that not only launched our Lord and Savior Quentin Tarantino into the Hollywood stratosphere, but changed the landscape of modern cinema forever. I'm, of course, talking about the one and only Pulp Fiction, which turns 30 this year. Now this, our main worship service series for Season 3, is entitled Pulp Reflections, where each month myself and my special guests will be taking an in-depth look at different aspects of Pulp Fiction in an effort to explore the movie's themes, memorable moments, colorful characters, juicy dialogue, and the pop culture impact of the film some 30 years later. For our inaugural episode, aptly titled A Pulpy Aftertaste, we will be taking an in-depth look at the cultural impact of Pulp Fiction and the market is left on cinema. Joining me for this discussion is none other than the man who, unbeknownst to himself, is somewhat responsible for the past season three is going down. I'm talking about, of course, Mr. Craig Cohen of the Conversations at Jack Rabbit Slim's podcast. Welcome back, Mr. Cohen, and may Tarantino be with you always. 
and you as well. Thank you, Scott. It's so great when I get those invites from you to come come chat. And uh, I know we chatted other things on this main mm-hmm. show, but uh, the fact that we're going to sit down on the first episode of your first se- season devoted to Pulp Fiction is is pretty exciting. Well, it had to be this way, and I will explain to the listeners. You kind of know my my journey, but when I began this podcast two years ago, as I was leading up to it, a good friend of mine and who has been on that show that I mentioned. Mr. Petros Patsilvis, who will actually be the first guest for the character study that is the second uh, series I do, he recommended that I listen to your podcast as I get ready for it uh, to maybe get some inspiration, you know, see how what you're doing, also to make sure that I also don't do the exact same thing. <laughs> Nothing more disingenuous than someone having the same podcast as you. But uh, not only did you come onto my show, but I also cherry-picked off Ryan Rebelkin and Mr. Pat Fournier. They have been on multiple times. And have been great guests. Yeah, Pat's was actually the first English-like language podcast he ever did was 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 with me. Yes, yes. <laughs> and what a mistake it was to pull him because he just changes everything I do. He's a real pain in my ass. No, I'm just kidding. Pat and I have become very good friends. He's got some great insights. He was spectacular in my second season. I leaned on him for three episodes of my hymnal devotional. He was excellent with all his knowledge of music. But the reason that this season, when I was thinking about what season three going to be, it just happened to be fortuitous that it's the 30th anniversary of Pulp Fiction. It's the movie that got me into Tarantino. It's the movie that launches Tarantino. And I believe, as we'll discuss in this episode, it is maybe the most important film of the late 20th century as far as cinema is concerned. But that being said, you did a show called Conversation with Jack Rabbit Slim, and you talked in each episode with a different guest about what they liked about Pulp Fiction. I wanted to kind of pay homage to that. I thought it was a great little outline for me to use where, you know, each episode, in past seasons, I've had more than a uh, person on more than once in an episode. So, like, maybe they'll do an, uh, an earlier episode like Reservoir Dogs and they'll come back for something later. But for this season, you're only on this <laughs> main worship series once. You get one shot. And I wanted to do it a lot like you did. But instead of just having a conversation and basically stealing your episode, your entire idea, I wanted to focus on 12 different aspects that take a real look at Pulp Fiction so that while it pays homage to your old show, it does not exactly steal and basically become <laughs> the Church of Tarantino does conversations with Jack Rabbit Slim's podcast so that we could, uh, you know, be similar, pay the homage that your show deserves, but also be its own entity of itself. And I couldn't kick it off and do it properly if you weren't the first guest because I feel like it would almost be like I was uh, cheating on you early and then telling you about it later on when you would come on. So I figured, I even told my wife, I said, I can't start this podcast this season if he says no. If Craig can't be on, I don't have to change everything because I can't do it unless he does the first one. So I want to thank you very, very much for being on and always for being very kind and generous towards me and uh, allowing me to take some of your whole guests and just being very gracious. So thank you for coming on. Oh, uh, you got it. It's, it's, it's an absolute pleasure. And one thing I love about the podcasting community is the connections you make and the people you meet. Yes. And um, sometimes it's people all around the world and mm-hmm. then being able to sh- share those people with other shows. So, uh, Absolutely. It's 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 always great to see those those names pop up uh, in episode titles. Now, I would be remiss if and I've had, we've talked this conversation a little bit before, but will the 30th anniversary of this film inspire you to add those extra episodes to the conversations at Jack Rabbit Slim's podcast that I know you talked about? There is no <laughs> pressure, but yeah. if and this is an if again, you do what you want to do. If you are ever going to take an opportunity to record those last few episodes you wanted, it does feel like 2024 
is the perfect year in which to do so, to close it out. But again, it's your show. You do what the fuck you want. Uh, you could do a Tarantino. You could continue to announce it and then change it. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, <laughs> You're going to well, do yeah, a TV you, show? Yeah. That's now a movie. Yeah. As you know, there you, there were a couple of names of people I wanted to uh, to have on. You included, of course. And then Sean Wheeler, our friend, who's touring the country selling records, which is awesome. He is. He And he's really, he's riding my coattails. He gets talked about people all the time. Our episode, back when we did uh, the Hateful Eight soundtrack, I said, you know, I would basically give up my services, fly to whoever would get me that box set someone's looking to get him that box set what i don't whatever i just constantly can't get a break but yeah he's doing a great job with himself and his scarefled records yeah no absolutely absolutely and yeah so um maybe maybe when we get to the the the, the weeks leading up to and the, the weeks after the 30th maybe i'll have recorded those episodes no promises uh, one other thing i i also wanted to do scott was a commentary track like uh my, what, my, it's one amazing of my... you said that because myself and mr wheeler had discussed uh, possibly doing something for yeah. maybe a patreon which i've had a very hard time wanting to do because i always i always feel bad thinking about asking people who are fans hey pay some extra money for extra stuff i always it's why i was never an xbox fan yeah to start with because when the xbox first came out you had to pay extra money to microsoft to get the remote control to play dvds when the playstation would allow you to play yeah. it using your remote i've always hated those add-on bullshit so there's a part of me that has a tough time with that yeah, well, I think the thing is with Patreon is, you know, it's an opportunity for people to support something they really love. One thing about, like, lock content is I think as long as it eventually hits the main feed, you know, like, hey, the you know, my supporters yeah, will get yeah. it, you know, a month, two months, three months, four months, even six months earlier or whatever. But, you know, if, if it eventually is unlocked, I think that's – there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, everybody's got – everybody's time is worth something. And I Agreed. think one thing Agreed. a lot of people don't – uh, realize or appreciate or even think about is the amount of time that goes into planning and executing a podcast. It's not just start recording and turn it off. <laughs> I wish it was. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe if you're Joe Rogan, you do that and then somebody else has the mess to clean up. I mean, yeah, but a lot, I mean, most podcasters are, you know, um, homegrown little indie, mm -hmm. you know, upstarts and you know, it's a one man shop. So you do everything, but getting back to the commentaries, uh, my first podcast ever, or my second podcast ever, was um, devoted to the original Star Trek, the original series. It was called mm. The Tricorder Transmissions. And we did a, co a scene-specific commentary for every episode of the original series. Wow. So 80-some-odd episodes, and then we did supplemental episodes and all that. And that was a ton of fun. So I was always like, you know what? I want to do one for, for Pulp because, you know, there's a lot of little tidbits and things that I picked up across mm -hmm. the years that I'd love to, like, put across that just didn't find their ways into regular episodes. So, yeah, you know, it's just a matter of finding, what, that two-hour and 25 minutes or whatever <laughs> yeah. to sit completely yeah. uninterrupted, whereas yeah. with Star Trek, it was, what, I think 50, like 52 yeah. minutes or whatever. But uh, so we'll see. Um, but, yeah, no, definitely 30 years is, is definitely something worth acknowledging and celebrating, and uh, especially in terms of, you know, what that movie did for me as, mm -hmm. a, as a film lover and a film watcher and somebody who appreciates film. Well, you'll have time because it's not till October. October mm -hmm. 14th of 2024 will be the official 30th anniversary. So you have time. I mean, we're recording almost, you have 11 months from the time we're recording to take care of this. You've got a good chance. But I had to ask because, I mean, I won't have you on again for a while. So yeah. this was my opportunity right out the gate. So later on, we've got the receipts. So that way you, yeah. can't, you can't pull You back. know what? I'm going to have to go in and log in and make sure that everything is still functional and I can still upload episodes. I know, right? <laughs> 
Now, you do other things besides, obviously, just talk about Pulp Fiction back in the uh, days of lockdown, which I will say, I do kind of miss. I do kind of miss. I, it's one of those things where we didn't know what we had when we had it. Even, even, even our country was a little, I mean, obviously that summer would get rocky, but it was, things were just, I don't know, you were staying at home with your, your, your family, you had to go see human beings, which was kind of nice, but you had this community here, so you could always talk to people, Yeah. and you, and you just had more time to kind of be creative, and now it's kind of like, even I find myself, like, I'm up against the gun a lot more than I used to be. Also, I've also, for season three, this Big was originally hour. just a two-episode yeah. podcast. It's now going to be three. It, yeah. At this point, why isn't it just weekly? And then I'm doing two other... It's, I don't know. Yeah. I, you know. yeah. The one thing about um, that whole... You know, I think I was furloughed from my job for 15 months. I mean, Las Vegas is a city that's very much driven yeah. by tourism. Tour. And I work in the convention end of things. So I was furloughed for 15 months. And uh, aside from, like you said, the the fact that I got to spend those 15 months with my dogs who were still fairly young at that time. Mm -hmm. So like when I did finally go back to work, there was a huge adjustment period where like they were acting out because they were like, Hey, (laughs) we used to be with you all day, every day. And now you disappear for 10 hours. (laughs) But I mean, aside from the financial stress that was going Mm -hmm. on, everything else about it. um, I loved it. It allowed me to tap into uh, creative avenues. I hadn't thought about in a while. And it allowed me to finally do conversations at Jackrabbit Slims, which I actually started thinking about before I even moved to Vegas in 2015 mm. was it was something I always wanted to do. And I just never had the time or the, uh, the, you know, the really drive to get it done. And then yeah. as, as the lockdown proceeded, I said, well, I might as well do that. I also did two, uh, I'm really proud of these. I did like two video sort of compilation documentaries. They're on Vimeo because YouTube instantly copyright struck them. But the first one I did was uh, basically a career retrospective of the Ramones, Mm. one of my favorite bands. Um, And it basically starts in 1974 when they're playing in the loft and it goes all the way up to, you know, their induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, and it's it's kind of like I call it like it's like a midnight movie. Just get some yeah. weed, get some beer, whatever, <laughs> whatever gets you going. Put it on at midnight on a Friday night. And it's super, super fun. And then when I was done with that, I was like, you know what? I'd like to make a video based on my other favorite band, the Beach Boys. So I did another one um, about the Beach Boys in the 1980s, which is probably one of their most notorious decades. <laughs> so those are both on Vimeo. I can send you the link if people want to watch them. They're both feature length. I'll put them in the description. We'll put them in. Yeah, they're, they're feature length. And, you know, sometimes the quality is not the best because I had to work with what I had to work with. But I think they're really fun. I actually remastered all the audio myself, which I did it like a real filmmaker, Scott. I actually stripped the audio from clips, remastered it, and then resank it. Uh, did a wow. resync with the video. So uh, I only would have been able to do that if I wasn't yeah. working. So yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like I said, there was a financial component that was stressful because you know they kept moving the goalposts on unemployment, and unemployment yeah. was enough. Yeah. To, you know to for the necessities, but still, you know, you're like, well, is is there a point where I'm going to have to go get a job at Target or something because yeah, my main job isn't here? But yeah, no, it allowed me to, like I said, it allowed me to do conversations at Jackrabbit Slims. I think a majority of that podcast was done during during that 15-month period. There might have been a couple episodes I did when I first got back to work. I'd have to go back and look. It's all kind of a blur now. Actually, I'll be honest, I know. You did 13 and your last one was July of 2021. It was the last one, and you went back to work around that time. I went back to work in June, yeah. So yeah, so there it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> so the people are just saying we got it's been three years. You know, it's like a Tarantino break in between the project. Yeah, I should have done that. I should have done season one, seeing three years. Yeah, but two. but you know what the good thing, Scott, is you know, and this happened with um, you know uh, how I connected with Ryan is you know we both. Uh, we both did and now we do together a Stallone podcast but it's the same thing with this like anytime that you take a break it's great that there's somebody else picking up the slack so yeah yeah for the for the lack of any Tarantino you know content content people were getting yeah. through conversations at Jack Rabbit Slims you kind of opened it up and you were like we're going to talk about everything Tarantino which is yeah. you know really really cool so it's not like people were left in this in this dry wasteland <laughs> I was like I said I've said many times I was surprised that there was no one actively doing it. So I'm glad to be the 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 the, the crossbearer. And eventually yeah. it'll end and someone else will pick it up and they'll do something else. But hey, yeah. it is what it is. It was wild. That was how the Stallone one was too. Like this the Stallone podcast, Flycast started out as kind of like just a joke. We were like, how is there not a Stallone podcast? He deserves one. And now yeah. there's there's probably uh, close to a dozen. Now speaking of that. What are you currently doing as far as your other music endeavors and podcasting endeavors? Well, I'm still doing the monthly show with Ryan uh, uh, Rabalkin, who does a bunch of Rocky and Rambo content, and Doug from Rocky Minute. And um, we get together every month and talk the movies that haven't been covered by any of those podcasts. So yeah. movies that Slycast missed or movies that Slycast you know, devoted half an episode to. So yeah, that's like once a month, and that's on the Last of the Action Heroes feed, which also yeah, has which some of your shows. Yeah, we know around there. Yeah, we, yeah. We, you know, by the time people listen to this, I, I, we've had, since it started, we got the uh, Dropping of Bruce on there, but we did a shift at our Cheeky Bastards, and now we're the Cheeky Bastards are men of action. So yeah, yeah we're on the Action Hero Podcast Network. It's fantastic. We, we're it really is. enjoying there's, it. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of great shows on there, and there's a lot of different uh, great insight from people, especially when you look at the Andrew of people involved there's people that are probably 20 years younger than me 25 years younger than me uh so it's always great to see that perspective on like a schwarzenegger movie for yeah. people that watched it for their first time in the early 2000s as opposed to watching mm -hmm. it in 1985 so it's always it's always cool to see those different perspectives uh, in terms of music during lockdown uh during my, my furlough i got back into writing and producing music and i put out two full-length instrumental albums, and an EP. Uh, and I've been work at work on my third instrumental for probably three years now. <laughs> and with the other two, I set timetable. I, I set yeah. um, deadlines for myself. Uh, I'm the type of person that I need deadlines. So for my first one, Catalina Rush, I was like, I'm going to learn how to produce on a on a computer as opposed to on a standalone eight track machine, which was a learning experience. Uh, and I'm going to give myself the month month of July to do it. <laughs> Wow. For the second one, too, I had a date on the calendar circle like, hey, if it's not done by this date, you don't release it. But for this new one I've been working on, I told myself, I'm just going to just make music without any deadline. It has taken longer than I thought, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm at the stage now where I just have to really devote probably two days to sit down and mix and master it and make sure it sounds the way I want. Because one thing that I, I do with my music is once it's out and people hear it, I'm done with it. Uh, I'm not going to go back and tinker with it and fix things yeah. and, you know, you're not, you know, you're not George Lucas. It. But either way, it's fun. <laughs> uh, I, I'm glad uh, I'm, I'm glad that the furlough allowed me to sort of re rediscover my love of making music as opposed yeah. to just listening to it. Now, as we get ready to jump in, what is your personal connection 
to Pulp Fiction? Where did you first see it, and what has been its lasting impression upon you? Oh, wow, yeah. So I saw it probably within the first two weeks of it coming out in theaters. Uh, I was not a, a day one guy. I wasn't a huge moviegoer back in 94. You know, I, I was probably seeing, like, the big blockbusters, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but I wasn't going to the movies on a on a regular basis. And I actually remember my mom and my stepdad went and saw Pulp Fiction on like that Saturday night. So it opened the one on Friday and they went yep. and saw it on that Saturday night. And Travolta might have hosted SNL that week. I'm not I, I that, don't quote me on that. But I remember me and my brother were watching SNL and my mom and my stepdad got home and my mom was like, oh, my God, Craig, you have to go see this movie. You know, like mm-hmm. uh, so it's like, OK, wow. And I went and saw it for the first of probably a dozen times in theaters. And it completely changed my view of film. Prior to that, I liked movies. You know, I was a Star Wars kid. I was an Indiana Jones kid, you know, John Carpenter kid. But the one thing that Pulp Fiction sort of put together for me, and I was aware of it, but it finally clicked with me that I was like, there is somebody behind the camera that is dictating everything. You know, they're telling people how to say what they're saying. They're overseeing how the camera's going to move. And it finally clicked to me that like, okay, this is what a director does. And what Tarantino did in Pulp Fiction just spoke to me in a way that no other film had done. It really gave me an appreciation of of the art of film. And the other thing that I really, really took away from Pulp Fiction was you're always you always know you're watching a movie, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I think I said this a couple of weeks ago. Like the best and worst thing you can do when watching a movie is think I'm watching a movie. <laughs> <laughs> but with Pulp Fiction, one thing I I noticed as I got home and thought about the movie and digested it because it was pre-internet. You couldn't just go pull up clips and even the trailer. But the one thing I took took away from it was all of the cuts in Pulp Fiction, and this is thanks, I'm sure, to Sally Menke, Tarantino's one of his closest collaborators, mm-hmm. who you know, sadly, tragically passed away uh, before her time. But I noticed that I didn't, I wasn't aware of when things were changing, meaning it wasn't the Michael Bay style of filmmaking. And I love Michael <laughs> Bay, don't get me wrong. But Michael Bay, he lets you know. I mean, it's quick yeah. cuts, really in your face, and it's a great style of filmmaking. And I love Michael Bay. But the one thing I noticed with with Pulp Fiction was I wasn't aware of those cuts until they happened, until I thought about them. And I was like, well, Tarantino really figured out a way to make watching a film as, uh, like for me, almost as organic as possible. And it really opened my eye at that point. Prior to Pulp Fiction, I didn't really care about that kind of stuff. And then after Pulp Fiction is when I really started seeing why I responded to certain directors. Why did I love John Carpenter? You know, why did the Indiana Jones movies mean what they meant to me? And it really opened me up to, you know, exploring filmmaking and and the art of filmmaking. And uh, that's something that I don't think ever would have happened without Pulp Fiction. I agree. And... You are correct, sir. On October 15th, 1994, John Travolta was the host of SNL. It is the only time he has ever hosted SNL. And in fact, singer Seal made his only musical appearance on the same episode. Neither of them have been back since, and that'll be coming up on 30 years next year. But you are 100% correct that he was on season 20, episode 3. He was the actual guest for that show. Okay, well, that makes sense. He was promoting promoting Pulp Fiction, so that's where they did the the Pulp Fiction Welcome Back Cotter parody? Yeah, yeah. It's the only one he's on. Yeah. Or at least hosted. He may have guessed everywhere. Yeah, that's wild. And actually, the Welcome Back Cotter um, Pulp Fiction parody was, I think, the MTV Movie Awards, and that was Horseshack 
and Washington. That was wild. It's glad to see my memory still works yeah. sometimes. I'm amazed that Travolta didn't go back. I mean, I Travolta know. was, I mean, Pulp Fiction. He had quite a resurgence in the 90s. Launched him. Uh, yeah. You know, it sort of gave him his, uh, his second act, if you will. Uh, but maybe at that point he was too big of a star to go back and do SNL. Uh, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who knows? I mean, I'm surprised he didn't go back for maybe. Well, it was a summer movie, so maybe it doesn't correlate. I was thinking, you know, face off, but that was in the summer of 96. So who knows? Yeah. Who knows? The world may never know. Let's ask our guest some fucking questions. But we do want to know our answers to these five questions. And all these questions will be the same for every guest, regardless if it's your first, last, 100th time on this show. It's all Pulp Fiction related. And we start with number who is your favorite character from this film? Okay, and th- this is really interesting, Scott, because if, if somebody goes back and listens to my previous episode with you yeah. and mm-hmm. listens to all the conversations at Jackrabbit Slim's episodes, all <laughs> 13 of them, some of these answers are going to be different than what I've said in the past, <laughs> uh, which is really cool because I sat down to watch this a couple of days uh, ago, you know, and I hadn't watched it probably in uh, maybe a year. And it was cool watching it again. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I I always love having an opportunity to watch a movie or having an excuse to watch it. But sitting down watching this, you know, there were certain things that just hit different. Uh, and this answer is, you know, kind of probably kind of surprising, but my favorite character, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. My favorite character on this watch was Butch. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I, I don't know, Scott, if it was the fact that if you really look at the movie, mm-hmm. for all the bad things Butch does, he's really the, the only main character that isn't terrible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I don't know if it's just as you get older, you start to, you know, relate with people that are yeah. a little bit more in line with your morals and things like that. But it just hit me. I was like, Butch is a guy in a situation, you know. He's ripping off Marcellus, which you could say is, you know, it's not honorable to do. But after that, like everything he does is, you know, in reaction Mm -hmm. to, you know, his adventure getting his watch back. And also, I mean, the moment where he decides to go back into the pit of hell to save Marcellus is a great is a great moment. And also, Scott, I, I don't know if subconsciously it was the fact that we now know in 2023 2024 when this comes out that you know bruce willis is going through some shit and uh, i i can't say that it didn't subconsciously affect me watching that movie Mm -hmm. and watching his performance and saying this is all being taken away from him and i I don't want to like put this podcast on like a downer note but uh (laughs) but that's one thing that i i really it was sort of i don't maybe even joyous getting to see one of his most vibrant performances. So, yeah, that's my answer as it stands today when we record. If you ask me a year from now, my favorite character might be different. Number two. What is your favorite song from the film soundtrack? The the end song is Surfrider, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Surfrider is just such a perfect send-off for that movie. It makes me watch the whole... Yeah, I'm I'm the type of guy that watches the whole Mm. end credits anyway, but has me watch the whole end credits and... In 1994, it sent you out of that theater in that mood. I, I think movies are great at capturing a mood and, and helping you sort of sustain that mood for as long as possible. I think, like, the one movie, if I could bottle it and live inside of it, would be, like, The Big Lebowski, you know, just because of the overall mood of that movie. Yeah. And uh, Pulp Fiction ends the same way. You know, Vincent Vega's alive. Uh, Jules has decided to walk the earth. And you get sent out on Surf Rider, which is just such a cool, cool song. And... 
you know, just the rest of that day, you know, I'm I'm kind of floating along. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, that's an amazing soundtrack. It started my love of film soundtracks as well. I think you and a lot of people from that era as well. Number three. Now, what is your favorite line of dialogue and or monologue from Pulp Fiction? Okay, this is another one. I think probably the last time I was asked this, I said it was probably... Uh, Marcellus's speech to Butch about pride <laughs> and watching the movie this time it's that end scene where Jules is sort of figuring things out with Ringo and he's going through that badass speech he used to give mm -hmm. and he's trying to figure out what it means because mm -hmm. you know and as realizing he says, he's full of shit as he's yeah, doing it too yeah great bit of writing and mm -hmm. the performance from Chan Sam Jackson I mean you understand why he was nominated for the Oscar but yeah that's my favorite line of dialogue slash monologue from that movie now, what is your favorite scene from the film? Ah, there's so, I mean, I named my podcast after it, but the whole Jackrabbit Slim sequence is amazing. Yeah. Um, I would have to say that entire scene from the, the, the time they pull up in the car, she says, don't be a square, to the time it fades out um, during the twist contest. It, it's a remarkable sequence. Mm -hmm. The set design, the production design, I mean, the fact that people to this day still ask if Jackrabbit Slims is a real place and can they go see it. Um, just speaks to the the atmosphere and the production design and what Tarantino actually created. And then also just the interaction between Travolta and Mia uh, yeah. or uh, Thurman, uh, you know, uh, Mia Wallace and yeah. uh, and Vince. And and I've said it on my podcast, like if you watch this movie and, you know, you keep track of where it's at. Vincent was on heroin during this meal <laughs> yep. and you watch him play the scene. It's, it's perfect. I mean, I've he never slowly been on... comes off it too. Like, yeah, the great yeah, thing no, is he th hides the kite when he gets to her house. And by the time we get to the twist contest, it's, it's slowly getting through his system and he's slowly, yeah. cause he's clearly a, a, an avid user. So yeah, he did just enough to take a little edge <laughs> off for the evening yeah. to still be a function. He's a, as yeah. sad as it says, he's a functioning heroin addict. Yeah, and, and I think that, uh, you know, again, he was nominated for an Oscar as well. And, th and that scene is a perfect showcase because it's very hard to do. Obviously, Travolta didn't shoot smack, <laughs> yeah. but he went through the process of, you know, sort of deciding mm -hmm. how Vincent was going to act and respond. But then also the whole conversation he has with Mia about Tony Rocky Horror yes. and trying to get to the bottom of why uh, Marcellus threw him off that that uh balcony that balcony just a, a perfect scene perfect mm -hmm. sequence and uh that's why i wanted to sort of host a podcast from there <laughs> <laughs> number five and finally what do you think is it marcellus wallace's briefcase yeah this answer hasn't changed since the last time we talked and it's right. plot convenience or plot device <laughs> <laughs> um i know that's not a satisfying answer especially because everybody who sees it is obviously moved by it i mean mm -hmm. we get we get uh, Vincent's reaction when he opens it in the apartment, and then we get Ringo's a reaction when mm -hmm. it's opened in the diner at the end. And you know what? It's one of those things where, for some reason, it just doesn't bother me, Scott. Like me either. Nice it's, a it's a tr it's a true MacGuffin in 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 great Hitchcock style. It was a device to you know throw the ball in the air, if you will. And I'm not saying there's not deeper meaning, but I'm not looking for deeper meaning. Yeah. And you and I actually covered its uh, inspiration back in uh, March of season two when we looked at uh, Kiss Me Deadly, which is where yeah. that originally comes from. And in that film, as we talked about then, it's someone has stolen plutonium from the Oppenheimer yeah. <laughs> Manhattan Project. And uh, yeah, they eviscerated you who opens it. So, yeah. Yeah, that was a great that was a great conversation. Yeah. I love sitting down and talking those two movies with you. Yeah, really, really cool. Thank you.
gentlemen, prepare to embark on a cinematic journey back through time to the iconic world of Pulp Fiction. Brace yourselves as we take a deep dive into the minutiae, the brilliance, and the unforgettable moments that define this cult classic. Welcome to Pulp Reflections. For this episode's discussion entitled A Pulpy Aftertaste, we will be examining the cultural impact that this movie had on the film industry and on pop culture as a whole. So sit back, relax, and let the discussion begin. It would be a disservice to not start off an episode dedicated to looking back at the impact this film has had on pop culture and the film industry without first discussing its role in helping to create the independent film movement of the 1990s. As anyone who grew up in that era can tell you, the 90s was the decade of independent cinema. Long before A24 and the ridiculous A24 vibe zealots came along, there was Miramax, who was the biggest player in the independent film game at the time and remained so for decades. Now, the 90s saw independent directors getting their films produced and distributed in droves by Miramax and studios like them. And as a result, indie films ruled the 90s cinematic landscape. With early films like Days to Confuse, The Player, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, Clerks, El Mariachi, Do the Right Thing, My Own Private Idaho, Bottle Rocket, and Reservoir Dogs, to name a few, being the forefathers of the movement. Now, Miramax may have been the biggest distributor of independent movies at the time, but it was because they were the one who backed the biggest name in the world of independent directors, that, of course, being... Quentin Tarantino. And no film from the 90s did more for the expansion and takeover of independent cinema than Pulp Fiction did. In fact, it not only gave a newfound legitimacy to the independent director, but helped give rise to the wave of indie films that would flood cinema screens in the 90s. Tarantino and Pulp Fiction helps to cement the decade as the era of the independent filmmaker. Now, not since Citizen Kane had a movie come along and completely change the cinematic landscape. And in my personal opinion, Pulp Fiction is the most important and significant film of the late 20th century. I now turn to my guest, you, Mr. Cohen, to get your thoughts on Pulp Fiction's place in the rise and takeover of the indie film scene in the 90s and to ask you what you feel the film's lasting legacy on the history of cinema is. Yeah, you made a lot of great, great points there and sort of helped, you know, give a little bit of historical context to to Pulp Fiction in its place. But yeah, I mean, independent cinema was definitely happening. It was sort of a, a return to, you know, a filmmaker-driven approach to filmmaking you know, that we hadn't seen since the 70s. The 80s was kind of the producer's decade, and we kind of saw the return to the, what, auteur um, kind of idea, you know, with the independent movement of the late 80s and early 90s. And like you mentioned, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, Do the Right Thing, Slacker. So I think the one thing, Scott, that you look at with Pulp Fiction is those movies would have helped sustain a healthy independent movement throughout the decade, meaning they would have played in art houses. Uh, Mm -hmm. Their life wouldn't have been much different. But what Pulp Fiction did was it brought independent film to the masses to the point like nobody was wearing Sex, Lies, and Videotape t-shirts, you know? (laughs) No. Um, people weren't buying the Sex, Lies, and Videotape script. No, they weren't. But with Pulp Fiction, you saw sort of saw that. You saw people wearing T-shirts. You know, how many people hung that poster up in their college dorm room? Mm-hmm. Probably, you know, the script won a, uh, won the Academy Award. Um, and you could go to Barnes & Noble like I did or Borders Books and, and buy, the, buy the script. So I think the one thing it kind of did is it kind of... You know, kind of like alternative rock did, you know, like, uh, yes. you know, you can call the Smashing Pumpkins alternative rock, but there was a point where they were the biggest band in the world. So mm-hmm. at that point, it's not really alternative anymore. It's the mainstream. <laughs> yeah. And I think Tarantino's uh, Pulp Fiction did the same thing. It brought independent film to the mainstream and said, hey, look, you know, there's 
all these other great, you know, there's a side street you can go down with cinema. Yeah. Um, and it's not going to be, you know, your, you know, your summer, you know, popcorn driven blockbuster uh, where you can guess everything that's going to happen. You know, there's these cool other roads you can go down. So I think I'm not sure it would have happened without Pulp Fiction. I think, you know, Pulp Fiction definitely, you know, gave the indie movement of the 90s legs. And a lot of filmmakers benefited from it. You know, they rode the oh, wave. Yeah. You know, there were a lot of people chasing Tarantino. And it, it's hard to talk about Miramax, Scott, in... in, in it, <laughs> I know, I you know. You know, since, since we know what we know. But Miramax was extremely important, too, for bringing films mm-hmm. to, to light that other studios wouldn't have touched. And you can say what you want about Harvey Weinstein prior to all those allegations, because he had a tendency to take films, butcher them and re-release them. And for whatever reason, guys like Tarantino and Kevin Smith, he kind of just left alone. Like, you know, there weren't, you know, oh, we're going to recut Pulp Fiction. Uh, And I think that's part of it, too. There was a great marketing push behind Pulp Fiction, which was definitely not indie. And, you know, Pulp Fiction made over $100 million, which uh, is, is definitely a milestone. It's still a milestone today yeah. for most films. So, yeah, no, the, the indie film would have thrived through the 90s, but it, it definitely wouldn't have It wouldn't have been what it is. I, I mean, I doubt we'd have an IFC or a Sundance channel. Agreed. And I also doubt that people would know some of these directors that we currently have today. Yeah. A crazy change in my life, moving to Los Angeles and then seeing this film. And then I remember very clearly, like at the end of the film, like even in the middle of the film, going, this is the craziest fucking movie I've ever seen in my (laughs) life. And this scene, it symbolized to me, like the world was changing, like everything was changing. It was so wild and so crazy. One of my favorite directors is Sergio Leone. And I always considered, I was doing to traditional gangster films, like, you know, Scorsese kind of Goodfellow kind of movies, what he was doing to traditional Westerns when he did his spaghetti Westerns. One of the biggest and long lasting impacts of this film on the film industry is how it redefined narrative structure in movies and television with its nonlinear storytelling. With this film's Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, Tarantino emerged as a unique new voice that popularized this unorthodox style of telling a story. But it was the latter film that truly showcased his ability as a screenwriter. Pulp Fiction employed innovative techniques like fractured timelines, flashbacks, flash forwards, and interweaving storylines. This nonlinear approach created mysteries, kept the audience guessing, and allowed Tarantino to play with the progression and rhythm of the film. It also enabled him to highlight specific events or stretch out certain scenes for increased suspense and drama. The complexity and originality of this narrative stood out from the traditional three-act Hollywood script. As a result, Tarantino's style has made a massive imprint on cinema over the last 30 years. A number of subsequent directors like Paul Thomas Anderson, David Fincher, and Christopher Nolan have emulated aspects of his nonlinear formats. Flashbacks, disjointed sequences, and out-of-order scenes have become far more prevalent since the release of Pulp Fiction. It has changed the landscape of filmmaking and has allowed films to take on an innovative and more or less predictable shape. Quentin's storytelling style has gone on to influence shows like Lost, True Detective, Westworld, The Affair, and Better Call Saul as well as films like Go, Lockstock, and Two Smoking Barrels, Snatch, The Boondock Saints, Memento, Run, Lola, Run, Trainspotting, and Sin City. Pulp Fiction fundamentally changed viewers' expectations, showing that movies don't need to progress in a straight line. Tarantino's unconventional rule-breaking approach gave films more license to fragment timelines to keep audiences hooked. Now, Mr. Cohen, what are your thoughts on Tarantino and his use of the nonlinear storytelling as a narrative device? Has it been overused? Have others done it as well? And... Do you even like it as a way to tell a story? Yeah, um, I, I'll, I'll say straight off that I, I do like it as a, a, a narrative uh, way to tell a story. And I think the one thing about it is it it 
when in Tarantino's use, it never comes off as gimmicky. Like you're going to go to a Tarantino movie and you said, Oh, Oh my goodness. You know, I know I'm going to get scenes out of order and stuff. It's not like mm-hmm. an M night Shyamalan movie where you're like, Oh, there's going to be some <laughs> bullshit twist at the end <laughs> with Tarantino. It always makes sense. And I, I love reading, you know, it's, it's one of my other, you know, probably one of my three main mm-hmm. loves, you know, movies, music and reading and Tarantino basically borrowed that device from what hundreds of years of, of, of the written yes. word. And, you know, um, you know, there were, there were filmmakers that had sort of toyed with that and played with timelines before. But again, I think Tarantino presented it in a way that was maybe a little more accessible or, uh, in a, in, in a way that made sense or was meaningful. Because, again, it allows us to end Pulp Fiction the way we do. You know, Vincent dies, you know, after that moment, but we put that <laughs> at the end of the movie, you know, to, to send things off the way that we do. So I think, you know, Tarantino was, for him, I don't think it was him thinking he was doing anything innovative or out of the ordinary. He liked the way Elmore Leonard told stories, you know, in the paperbacks he read. And he saw it as a, a great literary literary device and why can't you translate it to cinema and i think that was probably why uh he took the approach that he did the other interesting there thing there is like if you watch reservoir dogs you know we get those flashbacks to the characters and we sort of see you know how they end up in that in that Mm -hmm. warehouse but then i think the most interesting sort of test of the timeline structure is if you look at true romance and you look at tarantino's script and then you look at the way that tony scott decided to to sequence the movie and it shows you that both approaches uh are valid tony scott was like hey i want to tell this story in a linear manner whereas like uh and i think um pat has broken this down like there well like you know in in true romance like it starts off where everybody knows the same amount of information and then you know yep. more than the characters and yeah so i mean I, there's no i think as long as you're organically telling a story I think it's fine. I think there's other filmmakers that have toyed with that idea that, uh, I mean, Nolan has definitely been successful. I mean, Memento might have been a gimmick film where, you know, it's sort of told in reverse, but it it helped his narrative because Mm -hmm. it helped you sort of connect with the character who had this short-term memory problem. So, yeah, I mean, you know, there were gimmicks. uh, And like any sort of popular fad, people are going to glom onto it and you're going to get, you know, the bad knockoffs. But I I think all those filmmakers you mentioned, they might have gotten there eventually anyway. I mean, Nolan's a talented dude. Fincher's a a talented guy. And again, you like you said, you have to be someone who's working with professionalism and uh, an ability in order to pull off because there's a lot of bad knockoffs, as you said. But if you're able to do it properly, the way Nolan does it and the way Tarantino do it are two different ways. I do agree, and I love Memento because so a lot of people, if they if whoever's watched the movie, it goes from the end and the beginning. So in black and white, it's the beginning, and then at the end, it's in the color, and then it meets in the middle. The film ends in the middle, much like Pulp Fiction does. You know, the the real ending of the film really is when Butch says "Zed's dead, baby," says, and he rides off. But that's in the middle of the film. So you have to have an, a, an ability and a strength as a filmmaker and a writer to be able to tell these stories so that they come out making sense because yes one thing to turn it around on its head and tell it in different plots but if you don't tell the right parts at the right moments people are going to be completely confused and it's just going to fall apart yeah and and i think that's a good point because i think probably some of the knockoffs were just like hey let's throw the let's throw the footage in the air and see how it lands whereas with memento and the way nolan approaches things and the way tarantino does is it's written in a very specific way it's not Mm -hmm. like you scattered pages to make it confusing or to throw people off 
that was Tarantino's approach. So yeah, I mean, I, I think if your intentions are true and pure, you know, people are gonna are gonna see that. And I, I love it as a storytelling device because it adds tension and mystery because you don't know. And like you know, sometimes you do. You are ahead of the character, and sometimes you're not. And and sometimes you just don't know where it's gonna take you. And it's not a twist. It's just that you just don't know the ride. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite moments is I remember coming out of the theater when I saw it an opening night, and I remember a woman going, "I thought." John Travolta was dead, and I knew me I was like wrong film for you, lady. If you didn't know what was happening, it was signposts throughout, you know, but mm-hmm. carefully constructed. Like we, that's why we had the opening we did. So when we got to the end of the film. You knew we, we. This is the same. We're in the same diner at the same time, and what's going on? And she just, yeah, she just completely doesn't know where she is. So whatever. Oh, that lady's probably dead now. She was, looked like she was in her sixties at the time, anyway. So long time ago, she's gone. She and John Travolta's character, Vince Vega, are both on the other side. If you stopped watching Pulp Fiction after the first hour, you know, you didn't even really see the movie. Like, it takes an hour for it to really get going, for it starts really revealing itself. There was this neat thing that happened with audiences every time, and I, and I watched it with a lot of audiences. The movie would start in that cafe with Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer, Pumpkin and Honey Bunny. Then it would go into the, the John Travolta, Sam Jackson part, then the John Travolta, Uma Thurman part. And then the boxer comes into it with Bruce Willis, and then we go back in time, and now it's Jules and Vincent again, and all that goes on. And little by little, you forget about Pumpkin and Honey Bunny. And it's going on, and I've been ahead of you the entire time. Then when you'd cut to the exterior of the coffee shop, before mm-hmm. you go in the coffee shop, right. even though you never saw the exterior in the opening scene, the audience had caught up. Wow, that's great. And they knew, oh, that's what he's gonna do. Wow. Those two guys, the, the guy and the girl, the British guy and girl from the beginning, they're gonna be there. Oh my God. And it was this kind of thing where it's like, you son of a bitch. I haven't understood how you're telling this story <laughs> from the very beginning, but now, it's taken me this long, but now I get it. Right. Now I know, for the first time, I know what you're gonna do. Regardless of if you like the structure with which Tarantino weaves his lurid tales, one thing that cannot be questioned, in my opinion, is his ability to write unforgettable dialogue. There are few, if any, who have done it better before him or since. Now, prior to the release of Pulp Fiction, most of the mainstream movies coming out of Hollywood were chock full of dialogue that was conventional and expositional, with its main purpose being to serve and drive the plot forward. However, in 1994, Tarantino popularized a style of colorful, eclectic dialogue that was full of pop culture references, ironic humor, lengthy philosophical rants, and mundane discussions on trivial matters. In Pulp Fiction, his characters engaged in long, poetic monologues and rapid-fire, overlapping banter laced with cuss words and dark humor. This made the dialogue humorous, memorable, and almost theatrical in nature. It allowed characters and their relationships to take center stage over the plot. Now, Tarantino's script inspired a whole generation of writers and directors to take more risks with their film dialogue, making it more layered, casual, meandering, and boldly profane. His style of long takes and extended scenes with dense conversational exchanges became mainstream. In the decades since Pulp Fiction, this influence is palpable across many genres of indie dramas to big-budget Hollywood action spectacles, which now integrate more colorful vernacular and verbiage into their scripts. Pulp Fiction's impact significantly pushed the boundaries of acceptable language in mainstream cinema, and today, Tarantino's razor-sharp, high-energy dialogue still remains one of the most emulated and influential in Hollywood history. So, Mr. Cohen, once more I turn to you to get your thoughts on the type of influence the dialogue from Pulp Fiction has had on not just pop culture, but the film and television industry as a whole, as it pertains to writing characters and ultimately the shit they're going to say. Yeah, I, I think, uh, again, like we sort of alluded to or, you know, flat out stated with the, the whole timeline uh, presentation was, I, I think Pulp Fiction gave writers more of a license to relax a little bit and mm-hmm. 
not have every bit of dialogue get us from point A to point B, meaning that uh, it was another form of character development. Um, I mean, imagine that opening scene of Pulp Fiction where we don't have that whole conversation about Amsterdam. And it just starts with them opening the trunk and going up. We should have shotguns for this kind of deal. Yeah. I mean, the scene would have worked, but Tarantino sort of introduced us to those characters. And it probably made what they do in that apartment a little bit more easy to swallow. Because if yeah. you watch yeah. it, I mean, they basically murder these kids, for <laughs> lack of a better word, that didn't know what they got involved with. But you have this whole, uh, you know, sequence before where, you know, Vince is talking about all the differences between Amsterdam and the United States. And they talk about me as a TV pilot and they talk about foot yeah, massage. Yeah, it's, all those things happen before they ever knock on the door. Yeah, and, and it's all referenced later in the movie. So I think uh, its impact was powerful in the sense that it allowed writers and probably even producers, you know, the flexibility to sort of breathe a little bit and and not, you know be in a race to just present information. Mm -hmm. And again, I think this is more of Tarantino sort of taking an approach from literature and then also, you know, probably, you know, some of those, you know, more artistic filmmakers from like uh, the sixties and seventies, probably like John Cassavetes, those types. Cause if you watch seventies movies, even jaws, some of the dialogue in Jaws, you know, it's it's not what you'd consider typical Hollywood dialogue. So I think, again, it was just Tarantino being like, hey, this shit worked. It works mm -hmm. in books and it's worked in films in the past. Why aren't we doing this now? And again, it's it's all pure intention. It's all driving things. Um, I think if you look at like another, you know, great bit of dialogue from around that that period is, you know, Kevin Smith's uh, Death Star contractor conversation <laughs> yes. uh in in clerks i mean i think kevin smith probably drove a lot of the dialogue uh driven sort of actions that are happening in in movies in the 90s as well but like that death star contractor conversation there was a reason for that obviously smith mm -hmm. wanted to talk about it uh because you know it was prior to the internet so you weren't able to talk yeah. about that kind of stuff but uh again i think that's another example of a filmmaker like Presenting information that's important, but at the same time being able to sort of flex a little bit and and have some fun. I think at the end of the day, all of that dialogue uh, it really helps paint your characters, you know, with a with a broader brush. You know, it allows us to get to know people, and again, it helps you. It helps you forget that you're watching a movie, which uh, you know is one thing I you know I, I said at the top of the show is you know it's one of the worst and best things you can do. What I think this dialogue did was we always had to go into a movie and based on actions of a character, we had to decide do we like this person or don't we like this person. And what helps with these ambiguous characters, where I think the rise of the antihero comes from, is you know we're, we're meeting two people who are going to go kill. Their, their job that morning is to go kill. To collect this briefcase and kill all those involved with fucking it up. <laughs> Normally, you know, you ride along with these kind of people. You know what you're going to get. It's always talking about the, the we're going to hit, you know, the hit. We're going to kill them. What they do. Why are we kill them. It's all, like you said, it's always driving the story. When you actually write um, dialogue where it's like they're human beings, we instantly can connect with almost anybody. I mean, Hans Landa in Inglourious Bastards, even though what he's doing is horrible, he has a great representation of how dumb racism and bigotry is when he talks about the difference between a rat and a squirrel when talking about the Jews and why people hate the Jews. It's a spectacular look at how dumb humanity is. Especially when it says, you don't know why you don't like him, you just know you don't kind of thing. And it just basically encapsulates how dumb dumb that kind of thought process is yeah and even though we don't like Hans Landa and that's intentional 
there's a part of me go, he does make some valid mm-hmm. points on things. You're like, here's a guy who you just think is walking in to kill Jews, but he just likes his job. And at the end, he's got to kill the Jews because he also sees how dumb some of this stuff is. So they're not just black and white characters. We actually, we know Jules and Vincent before they walk through the door. And we're on their side for the rest of the time. Mm-hmm. And I've always said that this movie, and we'll get into it when we do John Travolta's character study, but poor Travolta's character, Vincent, has a reverse character arc if the story's told in time he starts off as a dipshit asshole and works his way up to being a sweet guy for what he does for mia and then unfortunately he's killed but in reverse he's a sweet guy to mia and then it becomes a fucking total douchebag that when he gets killed he's like nah, he kind of fucking deserves it. what a prick kind of thing you know what i mean mm-hmm. so but it's this dialogue that enabled us and to move forward and what kevin smith did is i think kevin smith popularized geek culture and that's where we started having these real pop culture talks, you know, the, the really geekdom of conversations. And Tarantino obviously played in that sandbox, but he also wanted us to immediately not be on the back foot of our character. We instantly, that we fall in love with them the minute they start talking. Yeah. And so that we can then swallow and stomach the stuff they're going to do and start to realize that evil is just perception. You know, that it really does come down yeah. to perception. But I think it's 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 also interesting, too, that, like, Tarantino was doing his own geek culture. Like, 100%. when Mr. Blonde says, I bet you're a big Lee Marvin fan. Like, I mean... <laughs> he's doing, yeah, he's doing older, he's yeah. doing, like, early Gen X uh, culture. Yeah. We're mid to end of the Gen X culture, where Kevin Smith is more speaking our language yep, uh-huh. and this sounds like an old man an old fuddy-duddy you can see the echoes of what tarantino pulp fiction and the likes after him have done for cinema because it's still there you still see it like some of the marvel movies have it whether it's needle drops or some of the things they say now like they're they're really playing in that sandbox of the 90s the disappointing thing is is that i know a24 is trying to move the needle but I think uh, as un- as unfortunate in the world we live in, everything is so extreme, right? Like it's either got A24 vibes or it's fucking sucks kind of thing. It's like everything is either this or that. And when you watch those films, I wasn't just a – Tarantino was my man, but I wasn't just like, that's it, only Tarantino. You know, he opened the door to Finchner, to Nolan, to PTA, to all these other guys that would come along and all these other people would make these films in the 90s. And you just had this plethora of amazing movies coming out. It felt like every year. Like, when if you went back and did, like, the movies that come out in some of these years, you're like, those all came out one year? And now you look at the movies that come out and you go, all right, there's three. Three I saw. Because, yeah, you can go, oh, here's some obscure ones that didn't make it to theaters. And you go, okay, I have to go check those. But, like, they weren't obscure back then. I remember my local cinema, because of this, playing movies like Suicide Kings, would not would only make it to streaming now. Would never see the light of day. You know, movies like that. Like, uh, And there's more that I can come up with. Like Albino Alligator. Mm-hmm. Like, there's movies that would never see the light of day today. Yeah. Even if it was A24, it would still be like a small art house thing, but they were all coming out in major theaters back in the day, in the cineplexes, and we, we've lost that. Even with streaming, we're losing it, because we're still not getting a good variety, so it, it's disappointing, because there were so many great films of the 90s, and again, Tarantino didn't start it, but this film planted the flag that everyone from that moment on was hoping to catch the next Pulp Fiction. Yeah. They were hoping to be a part of the club. Mm-hmm. And that was the difference. And there was a lot of movies out there that, that hit like that. Seven mm-hmm. blew people away. Usual Suspects. Fargo. Like, these movies just started, like you said, The Big Lebowski, even though it wasn't a hit in the theaters, it's a cultural phenomenon. I'm just, I'm just glad we at least get something out of it where at least the dialogue nowadays is at least not just subservient to the fucking yeah. plot. W- one thing I do want to say is I haven't seen a lot of A24 movies, but... A24 will uh, forever be appreciated by me because they 
they ultimately buried the film, but they they took a shot on Under the Silver Lake, which is just such a that was a movie I watched during the pandemic, and I think probably watching it during the pandemic was perfect. <laughs> um, but so the, I'll I'll forever appreciate A twenty four for giving us Under the Silver Lake, which if you haven't seen it and you're listening, you're either gonna love it or hate it. Which is I really 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 appreciate movies that have that type of response. There's no mm-hmm. middle there's no middle of the road response to certain movies. Yes, Under the Silver Lake, you're gonna watch it and you're gonna say love it, or you're gonna say wow, what a waste of two hours and 45 <laughs> minutes. And I, and I love, I love that response to anything really. I mean, the worst mm-hmm. response you can get is a middle of the road response. Yeah. Eh, it's just okay. Yeah. And I think Pulp Fiction was kind of like that too. I, I think that's one of the things is the people that saw Pulp Fiction and liked it really, really liked it. Yes. Uh, and there were a lot more of them than people that disliked it. And I think that's how movies and music and uh, anything else that becomes super, super popular is the people that like it really, really like it. And it becomes yeah. contagious and word of mouth and word of mouth definitely helped Pulp Fiction. But at the same time, the character of Quentin Tarantino also helped Pulp Fiction. And I think that's yes. that's part of it. And I, I don't know if that's on your notes to talk about. And uh, forgive me if it is. Uh, and we're skipping ahead here. But I think Tarantino, like was kind of like an Orson Welles or a Hitchcock uh, or a a Kubrick uh, in the sense that people knew him, whereas, you know, people went and saw Predator, but they didn't know John McTiernan. They couldn't pick him out of a lineup. But part of Pulp Fiction's marketing campaign was Tarantino going on, uh, you know, The Tonight Show or, you know, whatever other media he did. And being who Tarantino is, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of great clips of Tarantino uh, out on the road promoting his movies. Uh, and I think one of the things uh, that a lot of people loved talking about and a lot of people took the bait with was like the discussion of violence and how Tarantino approached violence in his films and sort of making journalists look silly for taking him to task for his violence. Tarantino's a smart dude. Um, and I think you know, a lot of what he he did in the 90s was probably somewhat manufactured. It was, you know, he'd spent his whole life uh, getting <laughs> ready to be a star. And when he had his moment, he took it. And that doesn't discount what he did or it doesn't say that he's disingenuous. But um, I think it definitely helped help propel the film. Because if you have if you have somebody you can attach to that, that love, put a face to it, 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 it helps sort of sell people on the idea. If you like the person who's making the movie, it's going to help you like the movie. What is the secret to Tarantino dialogue? Um, I just get the characters talking to each other. What you're trying to do is create an environment as you're writing that Quentin isn't doing it. They're doing it. Quentin starts it off. Quentin knows the direction it's supposed to go. But then the characters take it over. I guess it would be my memory. I just remember conversations. I remember funny things. I remember turns of phrases. But me and you go out to lunch. And we're overhearing an interesting conversation. If they say something interesting, and it could be nine years from now. You'll uh, remember it? Yeah, I'll remember. If, if, as I'm writing, if it's apropos, it'll pop up. It comes back. Yes, exactly. Conversation catches fire amongst the characters. And then they take it and run with it. And then I'm almost like a court reporter jotting it all down. Now, now I am these people, these characters. I am them. They are me. The hope is by the 40% mark or the 50% mark that the characters just take it from me. And then from that point on, they're writing the story. Now, QT isn't the first director to use violence as a storytelling device. He is just one in a long line that includes Hitchcock, Scorsese, Kubrick, Peckinpah, Ritchie, Refn, Cronenberg, Craven, the Coen brothers, and Takeshi Mike. 
However, when Pulp Fiction burst onto the scene in 1994, its stylized violence was unlike anything mainstream audiences had ever experienced before. Sudden, graphic, unflinching acts of brutality, like the iconic scene where Vincent Vega accidentally shoots Marvin in the face, permeate the film. However, the violence was not gratuitous, but used to set tone, convey danger, and move the pulpy interwoven stories forward. Tarantino made the aesthetic choice to depict violence in an arresting, artistically, and less realistic way by using bright red blood splatters, dark humor, and elements of slow-mo and music that gave it a highly cinematic style. In the three decades since, this Tarantino-esque approach to depicting visually striking screen violence has been emulated far and wide across Hollywood and global cinema. A number of directors cite Tarantino's bold, lip-smacking love of violence as a direct influence on their own gory styles, be it horror, action, or even some dramas. Now, while Tarantino has many trademarks, it sadly seems that his novel presentation of violence is likely his most instantly recognizable and impactful one. I mean, the man himself did say, and I quote, Kill Bill's a violent movie, but it's a Tarantino movie. You don't go to see Metallica and ask the fuckers to turn the music down. So even Tarantino himself seems to recognize this fact and is undeniably responsible for opening the door for violence to be less sanitized and more artfully depicted. For better or worse, this dramatic influence continues rippling through the cinematic waters today. Once again, Mr. Cohen, I'll ask you, how do you feel about Tarantino's use of violence as a storytelling device in Pulp Fiction? And is the stigma that has been bestowed upon him? that he's a director who only makes violent movies, a fair one for him to have. I think the the use of, of violence in his movies is completely essential. It's a tool in a toolbox, and he knows how to use it. I, I don't think it's fair that he gets sort of, you know, labeled with that, you know, oh, he can only do violence. But again, every, every bit of storytelling in his film leads to those moments. I think the culmination of Tarantino as a director, and this is the reason why I think if once upon a time... Time in Hollywood is his last film. I would be fine with that as a, you know, sort of, if you look at his journey as a director, mm -hmm. the the climax of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where um, Cliff takes on the Manson family, it's probably one of his best directed scenes, <laughs> his best use of violence. It's everything coming together. And it shows that it's not just a gimmick for Tarantino. There's a reason for it. Uh, not, I mean, we're talking about Pulp Fiction, but in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's almost cathartic uh, in the sense that we're getting this, this retribution or the, these acts of violence on these characters that did terrible things in real life. But in Tarantino's fairy tale, it went this other way. Um, and there's no way to sort of, make that scene satisfying without having that violence. Um, and I think in Pulp Fiction too, like the Marvin scene, which you mentioned, uh, uh, that's a, you know, sort of an out of nowhere burst of violence and it wouldn't have been anywhere near as impactful and it wouldn't have paid off the way it did when they're cleaning the car. If you didn't see that the blood and the bits of brains and things like that. So again, I think Tarantino knew that it was a, a tool in his toolbox that he could use. And I think he had taken inspiration from, you know, some European filmmakers, mm -hmm. probably John Woo. And, and, uh, you know, we, we kind of saw that influence later on in Kill Bill, but you know, I think it was him sort of showing his knowledge of international films as well, so, you know, and re and realizing that that was another palette on his paint board, if you will, or another tool in his toolbox. And, you know, I mean, if, if you if you think about it, like you look at a movie like Jackie Brown, which, you know, it's got its moments. But, you know, that wasn't a movie that depended completely on on violence to, to mm -hmm. tell the story or anything like that. So, again, I think Tarantino uses it when he needs to. And 
it has an impact that is supposed to affect a viewer one way or another. I mean, I think one of the coolest things you can say about Tarantino and his use of violence is that screening of Reservoir Dogs that Wes Craven walked out of yes. um, during the uh, the scene between uh, Mr. Blonde and, uh, and Marvin Nash, the cop. Yeah. Wes Craven was a dude that made a living you know, yeah. showing gore on screen and it was too real for him. So Tarantino achieved exactly what he wanted to with that scene yes. in Reservoir Dogs. And he doesn't even show that, he doesn't even show the violence. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Wes Craven's mind made up the violence <laughs> yeah. and it was far worse than he could handle. Yeah, yeah. So I, again, I, I think it's an, it's unfair, but I think it also sort of helped. Like, like I said, Tarantino's a smart dude and I think leaning into it was probably a good strategy in the sense that it made a lot of journalists look foolish, but it also brought a lot of attention to his movies. And I also think it's it's unfortunate, but he knows how to use violence better than anyone else. And I'll, it's, it comes with a dialogue. I think that they go hand in hand. We get lured into these dialogue moments, and then there's the surprising vi- uh, violence, right? So probably one of the funniest moments that I of his career is the Marvin shot in the face. However, that actually comes after a use of violence that is funny, but we, we skip over because the violence continues into Maynard's shop. We've just run over motherfucker. Butch has just hit Marcellus Wallace. We go to black because there's the accident. Wakes up, and then we have the Kathy Griffin saying he's over there. And who? And then she points, and he's like, I'll be damned. He pulls out his gun, and he fires at him, and he hits that one lady in the leg, and she goes down, and she is screaming. It's hilarious. But he's chased, and then four worse events happen. One thing I've always said, and I expressed this on our Django Unchained from Season 1 episode. Whenever he is making a point of killing people he finds to be useless, whether it be rednecks, racists, Nazis, you name it, that kind of person, the violence that's perpetrated on them is usually very comical, lots of blood, lots of gore, cool sound happening. Something happens where we, as the audience, know that this is, he's having fun in this moment, right? When Oren runs across and cuts the dude's head off and his head pops and they get the spurts, it's, we know it's all in fun. First, this guy's a Yakuza boss. Like, we don't have any like, oh, poor guy. But when he wants it to be impactful, much like when Marcellus is being raped, there's nothing made fun about that. Maybe Maynard's fall down is a little, it's paying homage in that moment to Japanese because he hits the sword and he falls down. So there's a little homage there. But if you don't know the reference, then you might think he's being comical. He's not. But every violent act that happens in movies like Django and Chain to a, a black character is very serious, it's very intense, and it's horrific. There's nothing comical about it. When Shoshana's family's butchered underneath, we don't see it, but we we can imagine how horrible it is. He knows when the violence needs to be real to really ratchet up the tension and make it impactful in the story. And he also knows when he can have fun with it because we're when Hitler's face is being turned to Swiss cheese, if you're crying about that tough shit and as i said about once upon a time if you're upset that he's smashing some lady's face into a banister just know that the character he's smashing <laughs> in real life she cut the baby out yeah. of mm-hmm. sharon tate so let's not start crying tears mm-hmm. just yet for these people mm-hmm. okay so i do think he gets an unfair name but i do think he wears it as a badge of honor sometimes because to, I mean, he comes in loaded ready to go he wants you to say you, you you're too violent or whatever and he picks you apart and his use of comedic Dark humor, obviously, he's not the only one because the Coen brothers do it spectacular. But I do believe Scorsese leaned more into a Tarantino moment in The Departed, which was not normal for his other films, right? So the the scene scene where, no, no, I'm talking about a little moment of funny. 
Jack Nicholson, they shoot the two people on the beach. And he goes, oh, she felt kind of funny. <laughs> Hilarious moment, right? It just throws you off. You're not expecting this. He's just killed two people. And then well, his name Frenchie there. He's like, oh, is there something wrong with you? But that moment is not normal something in a, in a Scorsese film. He's got funny moments, but rarely is the violence intertwined with some humor. And that's like one of the few moments in the scene where it is. But that moment where he says that to him, that's a Tarantino rub off. That you can bring humor to your violence along with the Coens. But I feel it's more of a Tarantino play than what the Coen brothers do with their violence. But mm -hmm. uh, it is unfair that he gets that because he's not the only person to do violence. But I do think he's one of the few. He's one of many who do it well and you can enjoy it. He just unfortunately is very, like you said, he's verbose about it. He'll tell you all about it. And he puts himself in the forefront. And does anyone ever pull Scorsese aside and go, what about all this violence? What about all this violence? You yeah, do? yeah. I think the only filmmaker that probably plays with um, expectations and violence is Paul Verhoeven, who famously with RoboCop, there's the boardroom scene where uh, Ed 209 malfunctions. <laughs> and yes. I know they went through a lot of different cuts of that scene to get it down to a, a point where the MPAA was comfortable. Um, and I believe most of the versions that are on, on home video now are, are the, the director's cut. But Verhoeven's approach was to extend the violence. And it almost becomes like a cartoon because it's like, overkill it's like mm -hmm. so here's the line verhoeven stepped over it and then he stepped over it yet again um i think robocop is a is a perfect sort of example of like over the top cartoon violence and then you even saw it like in showgirls too like uh when nomi <laughs> uh goes to get revenge for her friend who had been raped and uh it's got you know like this very sort of exploitation vibe i mean I, I i'm not defending showgirls because i think you either get it or you don't <laughs> and i'm not saying you're you're bad if you don't get it but like the fact that joe esterhaas and paul verhoeven were able to get a studio to finance a big budget exploitation movie still blows my mind yeah every time i watch showgirls i'm like i can't believe somebody gave them money to do this <laughs> and marketed it the way they did and allowed it to go out with an nc-17 it's like as much of a failure that movie was it was a complete success in terms of what they were looking to do so yeah it, it's weird that like you know sort of verhoeven doesn't get as much of a, a hard time about it as tarantino does whereas you know verhoeven was his use of violence i mean look at total recall which was a huge summer blockbuster well do you think it's because it's sci-fi we're okay with it because it's not real. And where Tarantino, outside of Kill Bill world, is playing, yeah. it, like especially first two films, in the real that's world. That's a good like point. It, the, yeah. yeah. No, that's... Because even um, Scorsese films, if you look at the violence, and the, I think Scorsese saw he could now up his violence. 1990, he brings out Goodfellas. 92, Roads of War Dogs comes out. And then 94, obviously, uh, we get Pulp Fiction. And then it was at 95, Casino. I think. Casino comes out. The violent level in Casino is through the roof compared to what it is with Goodfellas. Yeah. Through the roof. We're squeezing guys' eyeballs out. We're beating people to death in a cornfield with a bat. It is a level of violence that even Scorsese didn't have in his earlier films. And he's got some violent films. Mm -hmm. But he always told the line... You know, he, like he would push, but not too far. But in, I mean, Casino, he said, "Fucking the fucking handcuffs are off. I am free. We are popping eyeballs out." And I love even the scenes like, "Did you let me pop yeah, your eyeball for that motherfucker?" Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's just this level that. But Tarantino obviously broke the mold for a lot of things with this film that a lot of people don't get. Like, he really did break the mold for your dialogue and your violence in film to be able to be pushed. And those who do it well will always be known for doing it well. And those who step across the line, you're like, all right, this guy doesn't know what he's fucking doing. But I think maybe Paul Verhoeven didn't get, and a lot of the guys who are in action, 
As long as it's an action movie that's a sci-fi movie, it's okay because we're not dealing in reality. But the minute we start bringing in mom and pop, we start bringing in real people that we know. A guy like Marvin is shot in the face. A lady helping out shot in the leg. Like, reality. When we start to allow people to see reality, the movie business, for as liberal as it claims to be, gets very asshole pucker tight. Gets very conservative overnight. Yeah. Yeah, no, excellent, excellent points. And I'm sure this could be... Uh, an all-day discussion. (laughs) Like he said, if you don't like violence, don't go to a Tarantino film. And I'll close with this on this uh, this little subject. Some of his more underrated films that don't get as much love because they don't have as much violence. Jackie Brown, not much violence. Death Proof, not much violence. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, even though the fans love it, but the overall conscience has probably disappeared. COVID could have helped with that. Hardly any violence till the end. The movie you see behind me, The Hateful Eight, is one of them. People wait an hour and a half, and then it gets violent as fuck at the end, but a lot of people don't have the patience to get to that. And, you know, when you have those four films with the lack of violence throughout them, they seem to be less on the scale of Tarantino favorites. And it just says a lot that whether it's fair or not, he is known for this, and people go to see his films because they want to see what violence he's going to bring to the screen. And when he doesn't give more violence, the fans seem to pull back. So yeah. it's a tough conundrum he's put himself in. He's created this for himself, so it, it is tough. You know, I mean, I know he probably wants us to be able to see him as a not a violent director, but, I mean, you can't make the movies you made. Yeah. Have a movie go south because of Jackie Brown not being violent, and you come back with one of the most violent movies mm-hmm. ever made in Kill Bill. Yeah. At that point, you massacre the entire fourth or third Reich, right? I mean, at the end of the film and blow them up, so... Some of the fans are expecting a little bit more than waiting two and a half hours to see Brad Pitt and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio fuck up the Manson family. How did you come up with this idea of highly stylized violence? You know, there's all kinds of scenes that I respond to in movies. I respond to music sequences. I respond to big comedy sequences. It was like they galvanized the, the entire theater. Everybody woke up. Everybody got connected. And I would go see a, a film that had a sequence like that. I would see it two or three times at the theaters just to see that sequence and then just to have that experience with an audience you're calling it violence i you know it it is violence it's also action i think it's also kind of what movies do in a way that's that's particular to them as opposed to theater or literature is you know the filming of kinetic violence that can usually usually that can have different reasons for the impact but it can oftentimes give a cathartic release for an audience your ability to make a movie that by any objective standards Mm -hmm. is among the most violent movies made but have an audience laugh during the time or Mm -hmm. come out of the movie smiling Mm -hmm. how do you do that well you know um you can see all kinds of movies but when a movie really really does it to me it's because it's um it's made me feel many different emotions during the course of it and especially if i can pull off contradictory emotions that can actually work out. And I do believe that uh, I, I'm the kind of director that I'm, um, I, want to, um, I want to play you as an audience. I, I want to be the conductor and you're my orchestra. And the sounds that I make you to make and the feelings I get you to feel. And then I stop you from feeling those feelings and I give you something else to feel. And then I stop you from feeling that and make you feel something else yet again. Um, well, if a director can do that, if a director can pull it off, well, that's a real lucky uh, uh, audience member. Because you've really had an experience that night. You went to the movies. That was worth leaving the house. Because hopefully, 
you're doing it in sync and in unison with other people around you and you're all having those feelings. And I can't help but make my stuff funny because I, I, just, I just think of things in, 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 a, in a humorous way. Now, it doesn't mean that it's all a big joke and it doesn't mean it's all just uh, to laugh it off. It's not all a big joke. Um, nothing wrong with a big joke. I'm a big Mel Brooks fan, but I'm not coming from just where, you know, his aesthetic. I'm coming from my own aesthetic. So I do like the idea that uh, I can, like, um, do to the audience, laugh, 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 stop laughing, stop laughing, laugh. All right, uh, and maybe that stop laughing is something not so funny. Maybe that stop laughing is, is something horrific. Um, um, it was a very interesting in Django. Um, there's a couple of sequences in particular that are very, very hard to watch for for people. Uh, in particularly the uh, 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 the Mandingo fight to the death that the two slaves are forced to do, and then there's a scene where a runaway slave is a, is is attacked by dogs. And then the more we kept cutting the movie, the more those two scenes got closer and closer to each other. All right, so it was like really like traumatizing the audience. And um, now, if I'm doing a movie about slavery, I don't mind traumatizing the audience. You should be somewhat traumatized in watching a film about, about slavery. You, you, you need to know what America was like at that time. You need to know what slavery means per se to some people. To indulge in that, to take you down that road and to make you experience those things but then to actually be able to get you back onto the story again and then actually after experiencing that to get you to laugh later, that's a, you know, to me, that's, a, that's an accomplishment. One of Pulp Fiction's most revolutionary innovations was Tarantino's masterful use of an eclectic soundtrack comprised of surf rock, rockabilly, soul, and pop from the 50s and 60s rather than a traditional score. Songs like Son of a Preacher Man and Let's Stay Together captured the tone, emphasized emotions, and often ingeniously contradicted the violence unfolding on the screen. By artfully needle-dropping unexpected tracks from Chuck Berry to Urge Overkill in key scenes, Tarantino proved music's massive impact in shaping a film's personality beyond just establishing mood and tone. His anachronistic yet perfectly timed song choices have defined his directorial style ever since. Tarantino made such a cultural splash for Pulp Fiction's soundtrack that a whole generation of filmmakers began needle-dropping forgotten retro tracks, soul deep cuts, and kishi pop oddities across all genres. Directors like Wes Anderson, Martin Scorsese, Sofia Coppola, and Edgar Wright have cited Tarantino's influence in employing skillful, surprising song sync-ups that feel profoundly cinematic. Even big-budget action and comic book movies like Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy and Deadpool have integrated more old-school rock, funk, and R&B tracks into their storylines following in Tarantino's musical footsteps. Using music innovatively to reinforce plot, atmosphere, and character development remains as one of the film's most iconic trademarks, forever changing audiences' expectations of what a powerful film soundtrack could achieve. Now, for me, he is the needle drop master to which all others aspire to and are measured against. Mr. Cohen, you are a musician and music lover. In your opinion, did Pulp Fiction's soundtrack change how soundtracks have been comprised since? And is Mr. Tarantino the needle drop master that I trumpet him to be? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, Tarantino's use of music cannot be under or, or, or overemphasized. I think probably between Pulp Fiction and that same year, Forrest Gump, uh, it was kind of the resurgence of the movie soundtrack and, you know, driving, driving units. The, the one thing I appreciate about uh, Pulp Fiction is the lack of a traditional score, but it's a it's a movie that's scored. You know, Tarantino curated yes, yes. it and all the music serves a purpose, but it's, you know, it's, I forgot what the term is, but it's when. A selective score. Yeah. You're hearing something in a, in a scene that is 
part of the the universe. But the thing that I instantly responded to in Pulp Fiction, and I think this is a great sort of way to prepare you for watching that movie, is it starts with, what, the Dick Dale song, Miserloo. Yes. But then you hear the radio sort of turning, and it goes to Jungle Boogie uh, by yes. Cool and the Gang. And then we cut to the car, and we see that that's what uh, Vincent and Jules are listening to. Yep. But I think that that transition was a wonderful sort of cue and an early sort of warning or, uh, you know, uh, you know, just a, a nod to the audience to say, hey, you know, we just changed the dial. We just cut from surf rock to funk on a dime. The same thing's going to happen with this movie, you know, with scenes that sort of turn on a dime. So I think that use of music was a cool little indicator and a cool little nod and just a, a unique way to sort of indicate that this movie was going to be something different than you were used to. I, I think it's, like I said, it can't be overemphasized how important Tarantino's use of, of music was in terms of in influencing what we hear even up until today. And like you said, you know, you get a, a movie like Guardians of the Galaxy that was sort of, that first Guardians of the Galaxy was sort of promoted with Hooked on a Feeling, right? Yeah. And yeah, that 100% doesn't happen without Pulp Fiction. Also, when I talked about it with Mr. Wheeler back on season two, and we were discussing the soundtrack for Hey eight pulp fiction originally tarantino reached out to ennio morricone to score now obviously thankfully that did not happen and the two of them combined at the right opportune time when the hateful eight came out that the two together married that was the perfect moment of synergy for those two people if morricone scores this film this film does not have the impact because the music and the images they go hand in hand. You cannot remove them. One of the movies that I loved, but also hate the director's cut, which I never thought you, I would ever usually say, is Donnie Darko. The original score soundtrack that they put in Donnie Darko has a very Tarantino feel because, again, obviously, he's putting in 80s needle drops that are very prevalent to me because that's my, I mean, it's an 80s movie, uh, you know, it's set in the 80s. But when you go to see the director's cut of it, he changes some of the music and it changes the tone and changes the feel of the movie and actually doesn't feel like the same movie. So this movie and others like it, but this is one of the first movies where it wasn't just like, oh, yeah, that song's in this film. My wife and I the other day went to a new comic book store that opened up in our mall. And it's like a comic book, but it's also got vinyl. So we we're going through and I saw the soundtrack for The Breakfast Club. And I flip over the album. And the only song I know on that album is, of course, the song everybody knows, Don't You Forget About mm -hmm. Me. Everything else is uh, no fucking clue. You know, I'm like, I wouldn't know these songs anyways. So obviously that song, if you took that out, that would change that whole movie. But you could change every other song in that film. You would actually probably be a better film, you know, as far as musically. If you change any song in Pulp Fiction, any of them, it changes the film and it ruins it. And very few movies before and now many since are tied together with their soundtrack. They go hand in hand. You cannot separate the two. And if you did, it ruins it. And without this music and this soundtrack, you do not have the Pulp Fiction we know. It does not move the needle like it did in the 90s. It is not the lasting uh, movie, in my opinion, that it was in the late 21st century. I do feel... I know it sounds like such an old man thing to say. I do feel a little bad for some of my younger listeners because you now live in a time where all of this has been as opposed to pre. So it's like we're like before, it's like we're BT before Tarantino and they're 80 after Tarantino. And there's a big difference, huge difference, mm -hmm. you know. They, I mean, they get to reap the benefits of that because you now almost all movie soundtracks now, a lot of them are really trying to play in that world that. This movie did. And this may be one of the more lasting impressions is that whole movie as a whole, everything just, it's like lightning in a bottle. But it also shows 
what master of film Tarantino was then and still is. Now, there's a couple of times, as I talked about last season on the soundtrack, where he gets a little on the nose and gets a little big for his britches, like, you know, just a little bit arrogant. And sometimes he puts in really on the nose traction. Okay, he could have done something different there. But for the most part, all of the soundtracks, they surprise you. You're like, holy shit, I can't believe that worked. Like, you know, I, I probably parodied that more. Season three, people are probably tired of hearing that. But very rarely did I go, man, that song did not work in that spot. You know, he, he had the balls to not only do selected music drops, but then he eventually moved on, especially when he gets to Kill Bill, and does selected score drops. And I don't know, he really has changed the landscape of film. And for all those who hate him, that's fine. But some of the movies you enjoy owe a debt to what this man cultivated. He showed us what he could be in Reservoir Dogs, but Pulp Fiction showed us who he was going to be. And the music is so integrated into what he does and what we have. Like, this is like the peanut butter and jelly. You can't have one without the other. Yep. Like, you really just can't. Yeah, they're both good on their own, but they're really good together. Yep, absolutely. Your use of music is by this time legendary. Wow, thanks. For example, the song Stuck in the Middle with You is synonymous with Reservoir yeah. Dogs. How do you select this music? It's a big part of what I do, and I, I think it's a um, it's a big part of the 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 fun of modern movies, of modern cinema. And when I say modern, I'm meaning uh, to some degree starting with uh, Rock Around the Clock played and uh, Blackboard jumping a little bit more normal, and now it's very normal. Is to have uh, uh, modern pop songs in your uh, uh, in your films, and not only are they in them, like you kind of cut the scenes. Uh, to them. When you do it right and the music and the movie kind of goes in sync with each other for a sequence or so, it's just kind of like you're flying or you're skating or something. And those are always just like the fun, the, some of the funnest parts to watch with an audience because they're really engaged. I mean, mm -hmm. in, in the days before video, I would go and see a movie three times at the theaters basically because of one scene. And oftentimes that scene was like they used the song really well. Right. But the only way to really you're really going to get it is to go back to the home <laughs> theater and watch the whole movie again for that one sequence. And I was happy to do that. How I end up doing it my own, I have a, a record room in my house because I'm a big vinyl guy. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And um, I have a room that's almost like a little used record store. It's in bins and it's broken down by genres and subgenres as per usual. And... Um, and part of my thing when I'm coming up with an idea is to go through that record room and go through those records and to kind of find the music or the personality of a given movie. It's like I'm, f I'm looking for the rhythm that this movie needs to play in. I'm looking for the spirit and the rhythm that this movie needs to play in. But that really helps me sink my hooks into, oh, hey, maybe, I'm, maybe we'll make this. And it keeps uh, uh, encouraging me if I've like been writing for six hours and uh, I need to get invigorated again, then if I know I'm going to use a couple of sequences and I think I know how I'm going to use it, then I just play those songs and I imagine I'm in a movie theater and I'm imagining a bunch of people are sitting there watching it and I'm imagining they're being affected in a positive way by what they're seeing on screen. And I can literally, I can, I, I just pace around the room and I play the music and I kind of close my eyes and sometimes I don't even have to close my eyes and I can see the shots, just play out in front of each other and I feel myself like I'm, uh, that I'm, I'm in the Cinerama Dome, or I'm in the Palais of the of uh, uh, the the uh, Cannes Film Festival, the Grand Palais, and and I'm surrounded by people, and they're all loving it. <laughs> and now, That's do an you play part. this for the actors to get them motivated for the film? Not often, not often. That's it's a it's a real pretty private private thing. Uh, I give them little glimpses here and there, but for the most part, I actually rather uh, unless I'm using the music in in the scene itself proper. Uh, 
I'd rather the actors just kind of experience it all when they watch the finished movie. But I'll do something at the same time, though. I'll, uh, if it takes place in a time that, that would, this would be applicable, I could make a tape uh, that your character would listen to. If, you're, if your character uh -huh. had a little mixtape of music that they liked, I could make a mixtape that your character would have made. And then uh -huh. you can listen to. And this is stuff that your character responds to. I likes. see. Play a little Johnny Cash or yeah. uh, uh, Frank Sinatra or whatever the character would have been. Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. Now, upon its release in 1994, Pulp Fiction became an instant cultural phenomenon with its labyrinthine storylines, shocking violence, dark humor, and iconoclastic characters. The film represented a major shifting moment in Hollywood toward riskier, edgier fare geared at younger audiences. But beyond cinema, Pulp Fiction impacted pop culture like no film had since Star Wars. The stylish costumes and soundtrack inspired major fashion and music trends in the 90s and beyond. Its catchy dialogue like Samuel Jackson's fiery Ezekiel 2517 speech or Bring Out the Gimp entered the zeitgeist practically overnight. Scenes like Jack Rabbit Slim's twist contest, the gimp scene, or Mia's overdose sequence have become some of the most famous in movie history. Nearly 30 years later, countless films and TV shows still reference, parody, or pay direct homage to Pulp Fiction through story devices, visuals, and dialogue. Any shots of people drinking soda or eating burgers instantly evoke Tarantino's lingering cool. The film's iconic scenes, characters, and immediately recognizable aesthetic have seared themselves into the collective pop culture conscience. At its core, Pulp Fiction recasts movies as the new rock and roll. Dangerous, subversive, and irresistibly cool. Tarantino galvanized an entirely new generation of movie buffs, and countless directors continue emulating his unconventional vision. It's been 30 years, but Pulp Fiction's popularity and influence have never faded. The film still reigns as one of cinema's coolest pop culture feats ever. Mr. Cohen, this is really the whole gist of what we're here to talk about, but what are your thoughts on Pulp Fiction's influence on and place in pop culture? And I should preface this as we are both huge Star Wars fans, and I've always told people the two biggest influences on pop culture, in my opinion, have been Star Wars and Pulp Fiction. Your thoughts? Yeah, um, you're, you're not wrong. I And I think we sort of alluded to this earlier in the sense that, like, much like Tarantino's uh, media appearances promoting the film um, helped it, I also think the, the, the things you could sort of showcase your love for the film also helped it. Like I said, those T-shirts or those posters or the fact that, you know, you could go buy the screenplay, uh, those were the collectibles for that film. And again, I think... For a movie to really sort of become a phenomenon, people can't just like it. They have to love it, and and it has to become contagious. So, yeah, I, I, you know, it's it, it's hard to sort of try and bottle, you know, what it felt like, you know, because we're 30 years removed from it now. But, um, you know, you were seeing its impact uh, uh, on parody shows, you know, Mad TV, Saturday Night Live. Mm -hmm. Everybody was doing Pulp Fiction parodies. The Simpsons. Simpsons, yeah. You were seeing it on TV, you know, not even shows that kind of did that. You know, late night hosts were, were talking about Pulp Fiction. So again, it's 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 kind of hard to 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 remember, you know, how prevalent it was. But again, a movie doesn't become what it becomes without that kind of you know integration into the popular you know overall uh, you know direction of you know a country from a, a, a an entertainment standpoint. I mean, that's why it's called popular culture yeah. uh, or pop <laughs> culture. Um, so you know, having Jay Leno you know joke about Pulp Fiction in his monologue. You know that I mean that's overall it's 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 again it's part of why uh, that movie became what it became and did what it did and you know we're still talking about it thirty years you know later. For those who didn't grow up in this era, it 
it's hard to explain. I mean, because Star Wars comes out and it, you know, it transfixes a geek culture. The toys come out. It, you know, that, that explodes. That, that's a youth, you know, like a really young kid thing. But also, you know, obviously the collectibles for Star Wars are, are insane. I have those you can't see, but I have them behind me as well. But Pulp Fiction, like a lot of people said, it made me a movie buff. Like it made me suddenly go, okay, I know I've been watching movies and I've liked them. But now I want to watch movies more like Pulp Fiction. Stuff that has more stories than just Arnold Schwarzenegger, midair arm wrestling. Still a great scene. I mean, I still love Predator. But I wanted more than just this sci-fi fantasy stuff. And you're right, T-shirts. I've got the screenplay. I've got the the marquee that used to be above movie. You know, now they're digital ones, but they used to have this really cool see-through marquee that you could put up. I've got that. Yeah. You would go get movie posters. It became this phenomenon that was overnight. The the soundtracks became cool. Like it touched so many different areas. You know, it was in the Mad magazines. It was covered in every magazine. There really wasn't much that it did not touch, and still. To this day, one of my favorite TV shows is called Community by the guy, the gentleman who created also Rick and Morty. And they have an episode specific with Pulp Fiction in it. And it opened up this kind of ability. It was now okay for the people like Tarantino, for the people like Kevin Smith. It was okay to now talk about pop culture that they also liked. And it opened up these avenues for people who have created shows since to also have pop culture moments. And it's why shows like, even though I'm not a fan of it, but like the Big Bang Theory and other shows of the like, where that lean on the geek culture and geek culture has become, you know, just it's exploded since. It also happened at the right moment because it happened at the dawn of the internet. Yeah. Had Star Wars happened at the dawn of the internet, and Star Wars was a global phenomenon then. I don't know what it would have been like if Star Wars had happened in 1994 instead of 1977. The internet would have broken, as they said, probably. You know what I mean? It probably would have been that kind of thing. But the internet broke with Pulp Fiction, and that's how this podcast gets its name. But it just became a thing where you could now search and look for things. Yeah. And it was just everywhere, all the time. You just wanted more, more, and more. And now you had that at your fingertips to go ahead and find it. So, I mean, even to this day, like, what well, we've got memes now of Confused Travolta. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, a lot of different things that have happened that pop culture, Tarantino, this film did that stores like Hot Topic mm-hmm. and the likes, the Spencer's, T-shirts. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I don't want to say that Tarantino films are the only films that have done that, yeah. but it helped push movies into a different realm of pop culture than they had been before. In the pop culture content, it was like Citizen Kane or Gone with the Wind. It was like these culturally phenomenon, not these catchy little movies. And now other movies were getting a new life because of uh, what, what Pulp Fiction's influence on pop culture was. Yeah. And I, and I think you, you said something that kind of just clicked with me now is, you know, with Star Wars, you collected, you know, action figures. With Pulp Fiction, like you said, it sort of lit a fire for a love of film in a lot of people. So instead of collecting action figures, you collected those influences. Yes. <laughs> you know, I'm sure a lot of people started reading Elmore Leonard because of, of Tarantino. Mm-hmm. So there's your books. The music, it went people, you know, had people go and buy old, you know, old Rick, Rick Nielsen or um, Dick Dale music. Um, or it made people search out movies like The Killer. Yeah, John Woo gets a real big boost coming yeah. into America mm-hmm. because of the references. So that was the stuff we collected. Uh, instead of uh, Pulp Fiction action figures, we, yeah. we collected Pulp Fiction um related things or influences. Yeah. Um, I hadn't really thought about that until you just sort of, you know, made that connection. You got to appreciate what an explosive element this Bonnie situation is. I mean, she comes home from a hard day's work, finds a bunch of gangsters in her kitchen doing a bunch of gangster shit. Ain't no telling what she's liable to do. 
Yeah, I've grasped that Jules. All I'm doing is contemplating the ifs. I don't want to hear about no motherfucking ifs. All I want to hear from your ass is, you ain't got no problem, Jules. I'm on the motherfucker. Go back in there, chill them niggas out, and wait for the cavalry, which should be coming directly. You ain't got no problem, Jules. I'm on the motherfucker. Go back in there and chill them niggas out and wait for the wolf, which should be coming directly. You sending the wolf? Oh, you feel better, motherfucker? Shit, Negro. That's all you had to say. Uh, once again, I want to thank you for being my first guest. No one else I would rather have had this first conversation with. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I think it's it's a fun little thing we're do- I'm going to do this year yeah. where next one will be completely different conversations. Still following in your footsteps, yeah. but just on the side path, yeah, not yeah. doing the exact same thing you did. Uh, it was an honor and, and a pleasure, and uh, I always always enjoy the heck out of it. Well, hopefully you'll hear me this year, fans, on his podcast, and we'll be a very synergetic uh, combination. Yeah. Just keep reaching out to him and, and pressure him. <laughs> Peer pressure is, uh, is a motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so... It's time for your three for the road, our wrap-up questions. And now, here's three for the road. So we'll start it off with what kind of impact do you feel this film has had on the movie industry since its debut 30-some years ago? I think it allowed it allowed the money people to get a little bit more adventurous. Um, they saw something work that was out of the ordinary, and I think it probably helped other films get financing or um, get released the way they did because of the su- success of Pulp Fiction. And I think that's you know one of its you know probably lasting impacts is you know like we said it it took indie film to another level. Indie film would have been fine, but it kind of you know made indie film the alternative rock of film. Now in your opinion, what has been Pulp Fiction's most enduring impact on pop culture? I think probably uh, probably musical I, I I'd say you know I I think people are still using Miserlou to sort of you know that's that's a reference people immediately get. If you drop that into something, you know, the beginning of your sketch or or in a scene. Um, so I think that's probably the from a pop culture standpoint, it's 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 the way the music has lasted. And finally, this is always the toughest question for some of my guests. Where does this film rank for you in Tarantino's very small but extensive filmography? It's an important film to me. It's one of my top five favorite films of all time. But this is going to be probably an interesting and confusing and frustrating answer <laughs> because as much as I sort of, like I said, this is a top five film for me, I think in terms of Tarantino films and it, and it might be proximity to when it was released. But right now I think I, if I was ranking his films, I would, I would rank once upon a time in Hollywood above this. If I was making a list once upon a time in Hollywood, isn't one of my top five favorite movies of all time. But in terms of Tarantino films, I think it it ranks higher, if that makes any sense. I 100% get what you're saying. Some other people are probably like, yeah, I ain't fucking mine. Yeah. But hey, go fuck yourself. But, but, but I think this also gets to something I talked about with that end scene of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is if you track the growth of somebody, and if you watch mm-hmm. Reservoir Dogs and then watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, they're both masterpieces, if you will. I mean, Tarantino's made multiple masterpieces. But you can also see the growth as a filmmaker. You know, you you can see the decisions and the ideas that he had when he made Reservoir Dogs. And that all comes to, a, it culminates in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is not a movie he could have made in 1993. Mm, agreed. So I think that that movie benefits from that as well as, you know, we've 
we've been able to take this journey through his career and watch him grow and stretch and sort of get more creative as a filmmaker. And it culminates in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I think that's why that movie sort of hits the way it does with me. And that's a wrap on our very first episode of our Pulp Reflection series. I would once again like to thank the incomparable Mr. Craig Cohen of the Conversations at Jack Rappersons podcast for joining me to help kick off season three. I had an absolute blast discussing Pulp Fiction's cultural impact and cinematic legacy with him. Now you can find all the links to Mr. Cohen's endeavors and their socials in our show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. Now, if you'd be so kind and take a moment to like, review, subscribe, and follow us, the church would greatly appreciate it, as it will help other fellow Tarantino fans like yourself find the show. So be sure to join me again next week as friend of the show and co-host of the B News USA podcast, Mr. Pat Fournier, returns for our quarterly QT News and Information series, Tarantino Speculation, as we take a look back at all the major Tarantinoverse announcements and rumors from 2023. So until then, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.